This is Game Designed Unboxed, inspiration to publication on the No Direction Network. Danielle, Denise, and Ben interview tabletop designers on the games they've made. Together, they unbox how a game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Ben, Danielle, and Denise for Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. Episode 11, Castle Panic. Today, we are joined by none other than Justin DeWitt, co-owner for Fireside Games and designer of Hot Shots, Kaiju Crush, Castle Panic, My First Castle Panic, and more. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks for being on. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Would you mind uh, telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got into the game design community? Yeah, so I officially my title is Chief Creative Officer at Fireside Games, which is a fancy way of saying I'm the guy who either makes the games or is involved in all the design elements of the games. Uh, Even if we bring in a game from an outside uh, designer, I will do a lot of development on it. It doesn't mean I'm the only person that does it. It's just that's my main job. Uh, It's uh, kind of funny that I have that title, though, since uh, Emma and I started the company ourselves. It's my own company. I could give myself any title I wanted, but that one seems to actually relate to what I do. Uh, Yeah, and as far as getting into the the, uh, world of gaming, I mean, I'll give you the short version. I used to make games when I was a kid and then uh, moved up uh, into uh, doing that as a teenager, fell in love with video games, which kind of fell out of board games for a while. And then I played this little game called Settlers of Catan back around like 2000, and it blew my mind and immediately sparked the fire in me again to make games. I was so excited to see how far games had come. So um, uh, evenings and weekends, tinkered on games, came up with a bunch. Most were terrible. Some were okay. Got to a point where this castle game we had, my friends were asking to bring it over and we thought, boy, we should do something with this. Uh, Like maybe make a game. Along the way, I had talked to other publishers. I'd actually worked at Steve Jackson Games for a little while. Uh, One thing led to another. We saved up a whole bunch of money and launched Castle Panic uh, officially in 2009. That was when it hit the uh, tables. And uh, started our own company, Fireside Games, made our game. uh, And we sort of bet the farm on it in a way we were like, look, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to, we're either going to regret not doing it or doing it. So let's do it. We ended up printing uh, 3,500 copies because uh, everyone we talked to said, you're crazy to print 5,000 from an unknown designer, an unknown game. We agreed. Yeah, that's probably crazy. So uh, we did our 3,500 and that sold out in about 10 weeks. <laughs> and so wow. we, we needed to make more very quickly. And that was pretty much the first few years of the company it was me trying desperately to keep up with all the, producing and manufacturing and getting in of games and then making new games. And, you know, years later, here I am on your show. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you touched on a lot of things. So I want to just start with <laughs> what inspired you to design Castle Panic as your first game? Well, it, technically it wasn't my first game, just my first published game. Well, but I, the yeah, reason first final uh, published beautiful <laughs> There we go. Hit. In the world, actually touchable and all that. Yes. Um It's a combination of things, but really what it came down to was I was seeing moments of cooperation in some of my other games, and I always – it just tickled me. I liked seeing that. Usually it was ganging up on other people, but I was like, boy, that's cool. Somebody should do something with that. And at the time, there weren't a lot of cooperative games. There really weren't any. Um, As we developed this, I bumped into – Rainer Nietzsche's Lord of the Rings. And then, of course, Pandemic came out a little bit before we did. And I was excited to see these, but I was also – I was like – they're not doing what I want to do. They're not the kind of cooperation I'm looking for. I want that really all in the same boat kind of feel. Uh, and I wanted something different than the way pandemic hit. I mean, I love pandemic fantastic game, but I wanted to do a slightly different thing. 
And I just, you know, the original concepts were sort of, hey, what's things people do together? And various ideas of, you know, flying a spaceship together or defending a castle and things. And the castle idea worked really well. Fantasy, of course, always a pretty good genre to play with. And it led itself well to like, oh, yeah, we can have little enemies that are goblins, big enemies that are trolls. We can have walls that get knocked down and all that. So it just kind of bled very easily into a we all have a common goal. Stay alive. We're in a castle. That's our place. Here come some monsters. Let's do this, you know. (laughs) So can you share a bit about how do you play Castle Panic for those of our listeners who haven't had a chance to play yet? Yeah, totally. So it is a cooperative game in its heart. And the way it works is it's on a uh, plate on a board that has six different arcs, uh, numbered one through six. Um, the arcs are colored red, green, and blue. There's two red, two green, two blue. And then there are the the whole board is kind of divided like a bullseye with rings. Uh, starting in the outside, you have the forest ring, then the archer ring, then the knight ring, then the swordsman ring. In the very center, the bullseye of the board is the castle ring. And that's where we take our little chipboard castles. We put them in plastic stands so the walls and towers stand vertical. They give the game kind of a neat 3D look that way. Um, Those are all in the middle. You have six walls and six towers that connect to those arcs kind of thing. And the whole point of the game is to survive an onslaught of monsters that are automatically generated by the game. Uh, The end of your turn is to put out new monsters, roll dice, put them on the board, and move the other ones forward. So the beginning of your turn is all, you know, getting new cards, planning your moves, talking to your other gamers about, hey, I want to trade you this card so I can hit this monster. And then you're playing cards like a red knight or a blue swordsman or something to match where the monsters are and you're plinking them. And the monsters are uh, triangle shaped with different um, points on the edges of the triangle and you rotate them down. And so they tick down. The big guys have three points. They tick them down to two, then down to one, then down to zero. Um, So you have this neat built-in health tracking system that's super easy and convenient to do. And it's essentially, I like to describe it like a conveyor belt of doom. You know, stuff comes out from the edges, works its way into the middle. You don't want that to happen. If Mm -hmm. uh, monsters hit your walls or towers, they smash them. And if you lose all six towers, the game is over. You have lost and monsters have won, which does happen pretty often. But if you kill all the monsters and have at least one tower left, you win. Oh my God. First off, love this game. Second off, <laughs> we ended up having a catchphrase. And I shouldn't say we, the person I was playing with, Gabby, she would just say, wait one moment, hear me out. Because anytime <laughs> I thought I was going to be the quarterback, this is a completely new gamer. Like she's becoming a gamer because of me. She would stop me and say, hear me out. And she nice. would completely see where I should be passing cards because she would know like which person was going to enter which ring. And oh, it was so nice. exciting to feel that and like have right. someone who wasn't a gamer be that invested and become a quarterback to a game. Right, right. No, that's great. I mean, that's one of the things when I was working on it is we knew we wanted – when we started Fireside as its whole, the core idea was to get more people involved in gaming. Because you got to remember, this is back in like, I started design work in 2001. Board games were a weird, niche thing then. So I wanted to be basically evangelistic about bringing people into games. And that ended up making the design of this game very gateway. It's super, super friendly. The game is very easy to play. I mean, I've literally taught you guys how to play the game. Now you just get all the fun of what's going to happen and what cool cards to play. Um, it works great with kids of a certain age, as long as they're old enough to kind of read and make their own strategies, you can play with them if they're younger. Um, it, I've had people who it's their first experience to gaming at all. So yeah, we wanted that super approachable, super fun, light, yet, oh my God, we're all going to die kind of feel all in one package. And that's pretty much what we got. So Castle Panic is definitely one of the 
I guess, archetypical uh, games that come to mind when we talk about tower defense. And I'd like to ask, mechanically speaking, if that's how it was, Justin, from the very beginning, or maybe what other changes kind of happened to uh, the gameplay over the course of development and playtesting? Yeah, um, that's a really good uh, observation. And it's a thing that comes up a lot. I, I describe it as tower defense. But if you're really into tower defense, then it actually doesn't work that way. You know, most tower defense games, you have automatic towers that fire at monsters as they go past. And this is you're literally defending towers in our game. So but it it, it hits the same notes and I think it feels the same. Um, and yeah, the original design was always intended to be group working together for common goal um, to defend these you know, uh, common mechanical constructions kind of thing. They needed to defend the castle. Uh, how they went about that changed a lot, though, during the game. How so? Uh, well, uh, let me think. Uh, the, the biggest thing that happened probably early on was um, the very first version of the game had the towers. Uh, it was built more like a real castle where there was the tower. Towers were between walls. And the idea was you would be assigned a tower to defend. It's like I'm tower number one. You're tower number two. You'll be tower number three. And then you could only attack things that were coming towards you. So you had to sort of like help out as the monster sort of went by you. It was a horrible mess. It was terrible. Oh, no. <laughs> um, pe- people basically only wanted to defend their own tower. They wouldn't really help anybody else. Uh, and the, the gameplay was really clunky. It, it, it didn't work. It was almost unplayable. So like the first two or three times it hit the table, pretty much everybody was done with it. And so was I. I almost threw it away. I was like, nah, I don't like this. It's no good. I don't want to work on it. But luckily, I stuck to it. Uh, put it away for a while, came back. Uh, meanwhile, during all this time, of course, I had a day job. So this was my evenings, weekends, holidays, that kind of thing. Uh, came back and tweaked it. And one of the things we did is we took the towers and put them inside the walls. So now there's like a double layer. There's a layer of towers and then there's a layer of walls. That helped a ton because now by the time the monsters were through, it was everybody's problem. And we took out the personalization. You aren't a tower in the game. You are simply a defender of the castle. You don't have a piece or anything. That was huge. That really brought everybody back to the table, really wanting to work together, really wanting to cooperate. And uh, that, I mean, that's kind of, that was where the the gold was. Once we hit that, it was a matter of refining and really polishing that up to get that kind of all for one, one for all feel that we wanted to give. That's awesome. And over 10 years ago too, crazy to think. Yeah, I know, right? I always like to imagine myself as the king or queen just yelling at people like, you do this, you do that. We have monsters in this direction. But then like awkwardly, a lot of them are, I don't know, on a lunch break. So you can't get what you want. And you're like, all right, I'll just have to make do with these archers that are kind of useless right now. But you know what? At least they're here and they're not on break. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Your your, uh, your loyal uh, servant workers, uh, warriors are kind of absent minded. They're not always where you need them to be at the right time. (laughs) I know. And for some reason, they only like certain colors. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not an efficient way to defend a castle. I'll be the first to <laughs> declare that. So, Justin, yeah, we just talked about kind of setting the stage for all of this to happen. Can you remember how long it was in total before 2009 to actually bringing the game to publication? About how long it was uh, kind of coming up with this initial idea, getting all the hours into playtest on those weekends and weeknights? Um just yeah kind of the process or uh the the time commitment uh between inspiration to the publication itself yeah uh it was a long time (laughs) the first core of an idea i think probably came around i want to say 2001 ish 
Um, and it was literally this idea of, oh, what if, you know, we could all work together on something. And that got polished into, hey, this castle idea might work. It's funny. I remember waking up one morning and seeing in my head the picture of a goblin on a card. And I think it even had a color to it. And I was like, oh, that's how I can do this. I can use the colors and the rings to do. Oh, OK. Oh, I nice. see how this will work. But it was like totally not what the game ended up being. But it was that nice spark of, ooh, that's going to be cool. So again, this was um, evenings and weekends. So I would literally sometimes work on it from the minute I got off work on Friday till, you know, day I had to go back on Monday. And then there would be like weeks, if not months, where I wouldn't even touch it. Just life, you know, doing other things got in the way and was awfully fun. I had a lot of great adventures during that time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there, in theory, you know, it went basically from around 2001 to about 2000, uh, late 2008, I'd say was working on it. But I also worked on some other games in the meantime and we started the company and like I said it wasn't like it was 365 days a year working on it. There were there were big sections where I took it off and that actually is one of those things that I think is kind of a hidden trick to really good board game design, really good almost anything in that sense, any kind of creative endeavor. Sometimes walking away is one of the most powerful things you can do. Um uh, not to get too off topic, but for our game Hot Shots, that was the best thing I ever did. The versions of Hot Shots we had that was working perfectly fine was not nearly as good as what we ended up publishing because I put it away for a few years to work on other games, came back, and I had so much more experience. I had more patience for it. I had brand new eyes to look at it. It's kind of the same thing even with Castle Panic. You just kind of walk away a little bit, chew on other things, play other things, experience other events in your life, then come back and hit it with fresh eyes and a fresh brain, and you'd be amazed what you can do with it. I love hot shots. So there are lots of ways to uh, move a game forward and get it published. What made you decide to start Fireside Games and have this be the initial title to launch yourself as a publisher? Right. <laughs> well, I, I could say I was dropped on my head as a baby, but no, I uh, we made that decision <laughs> on purpose. Um, it was a couple of things. One of them is... Uh, I start. I did look at um, at the time publishers, and this is you know again back in two thousand. Oh my gosh, maybe four ish. I think the publishing landscape was very different. I mean, first off, there was no Kickstarter. That wasn't even an option. So it was either you sell your game to a publisher or you start your own publishing company. Uh, I looked at other publishers. I looked at a bunch of them. There were a handful that were kind of interesting, but it didn't feel like it fit with anybody. It was kind of its own thing. And uh, at the time, I even I was working as Steve Jackson Games. I was a production artist, and then I went on to be a production manager there. And even there, as much as I love those guys, I knew it wasn't their kind of game. It didn't fit right. So it's like, all right, what do I do with this thing? And the other part of it is my wife and I are both very entrepreneurial and at heart. We wanted to kind of run our own business someday. And it kind of made sense. Well, what if we did it as a game company? And, you know, at the time, it, it, I mean, as crazy as it was, this was kind of what happened is people just started game companies. Uh, back then. And we were like, okay, look, here's what we can do. We, my wife's got a great head for business. She's got all these numbers and everything that she can handle. She understands accounting. I can handle the printing because my background is graphic design and illustration. So I knew how to get things printed. Uh, I had connections in the industry for things like uh, I knew who distributors were. I could call them up and say, hey, would you carry the game? I had negotiations with uh, those guys. I had people I talked to about how to handle international shipping. I talked to every printer I could find. And so kind of just bullheadedly dogging my way through it. Uh, we were able to put together a plan. And the other thing that really, I guess I should back up and kind of say, the thing that really anchored that versus going with another publisher was as I kept working on new designs, we realized we kind of have a brand here. 
Castle Panic's one game, but I've got like six or seven or eight or nine or 12 or 20 other ideas. And they feel like they fit the same sort of, oh, what's the right word? Temperament. You know, we've got this brand that's very family friendly. It's kind of easy to get into, but still light fun for gamers. We think we've got something here that we can make a brand out of. So uh, why don't we give that a shot? And again, like I said earlier, it's sort of those like, damn the torpedoes we're going to do this and we're going to regret one thing or the other let's let's pull the trigger so yeah it ended up being this makes more sense to do as a publisher rather than sell to somebody else who i just couldn't think of a good fit and there you go (laughs) totally makes sense how did you fund the initial printing of the game then uh we saved up every penny we could uh primarily at the time my wife and i were both working and she we ended up living off of my salary and saving as much of hers as we could uh it, I can't remember what the initial print run was. Uh, I want to say it was high 20s. Uh, I might be wrong on that. But um, the thing I remember, yeah. So uh, to answer your question, yeah, we basically just saved up for it. We did not get any kind of loans or anything. We didn't want to risk. We wanted to risk as little as we could other than, you know, savings. Uh, but we had we were young enough that we weren't worried about like retirement savings being depleted. And we weren't cashing out any kind of uh, 401ks or anything like that. This was literally just scrimp and save, eat a lot of ramen, save up to start our company. And when we finally did it, I remember we were writing the check to the printer and Emery signing it. And I actually reach over and I, I grab her arm and I go, hang on, hang on. Do we really want to do this? This is the biggest check we've ever written in our lives. And we stopped and we're like, well, yeah, even if it goes wrong, we can at least say we tried. Like, okay, all right, let's do it. Let's write that check. <laughs> and off we went. Wow. That is amazing. I'm sorry, but like to have that much faith in your game and you two just like starting up a book. That's amazing. Like I look at the people starting up companies using Kickstarter and I think that's hard, but wow. Kudos yeah. to both oh, of you. It was, it was a lot of learning the hard way. I like to say though, I will say, um, I asked a lot of really, really smart people, a lot of really dumb questions and they were very nice to help me out. So, uh, we didn't do this on our own. I talked to everybody who would sit still for five minutes and back then, uh, and I got some great feedback about a bunch of what to do, what not to do and all that. And yeah, but at the end of the day, we knew the game was good. Every time we played it, the response we got was phenomenal. We had something really unique. And, and again, it, it was that sense of, look, we do it. If it doesn't work, we can still eat. We won't lose our house or anything. And if it works, cool. We did something amazing. And we got really lucky that we did it right that way. I'm wondering, given how popular Kickstarter is now, do you think you would have done things differently given, yeah, given the different context now, like if you were launching today, Mm -hmm. would you use a different avenue or would you still choose self-publishing to start? Uh, It's weird. There's that whole, if I knew now what I know, know then sort of thing, Mm -hmm. uh, knew then what I knew now. Uh, There's, uh, if I take that out of the equation, I was just coming into it. I think I would probably look at Kickstarter really seriously just Mm -hmm. because, at the end of the day, my heart is in game design, not necessarily running a company. And that's one of the big things is, uh, well, I guess I should take that back. I, I really would probably look more at selling to a publisher, actually, um, because starting a Kickstarter is starting your own company. I think a lot of people don't understand that. It's not just making a game. It's now you have a brand and you need to consider things like customer service and your follow-up things and Oh, uh, you know, do you have an accountant? How do you feel about taxes? Congratulations, you're running a business, whether you wanted to or not. So, I, that's a really good question. If I if I were coming into this blind now, I would probably do Kickstarter and probably make a bunch of mistakes. But if I was able to do figure out what I wanted, I might 
look to publish, uh, have someone else publish and see if I could remain freelance as a designer. That would get a lot of the stuff that's not as much fun off my plate now. So that that's my maybe answer right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what I switched to. Yeah, right. <laughs> so really quick, Justin, uh, I'd like to know kind of, um, you've been uh, working as an art director over at Steve Jackson Games for a little bit. And then if I'm not mistaken, yeah, I kind of just found this out that you were the also artist of Castle Panic. So I mean, mm-hmm. that probably helped uh, save a few costs uh, other than time and then also really bring your true vision to life, that uh, original goblin uh, image that you had in your head from way back when. Yeah, it's it's one of those weird things where it was kind of the perfect storm. Again, it's like my background is graphic design and illustration. I used to work in multimedia. I made uh, you know educational training CD-ROMs back in the day. I did a little bit of work in video games, and I wanted to be an animator, like a Disney animator growing up. But 2D was quickly dying, so all these 2D illustration skills got to go somewhere, right? <laughs> so uh, yeah, um, when it came down to it, it was one of those things where it was a combination of time saving and money savings. Like I can do the art and I know what I want. I don't have to deal with, you know, waiting on anybody. And we were putting everything we had at that point pretty much into production costs. So we didn't have a lot of budget to pay for artists. So yeah, it kind of made sense. And it also, I knew I wanted that look that it has that kind of not quite cartoony, but not quite serious because Mm -hmm. that's kind of how the game is. The game is easy to play, but it will kill you. So it's got that weird half and half. Uh, Yeah. And so that's been, um, that's been an interesting thing to see though. I will say though, uh, you know, uh, that worked great back then. Uh, my skills have, you know, been focused more on design and stuff. So, uh, the only other art I've done recently, well, I wouldn't say recently is our game, uh, bears, our dice game. I did the art for that one because it's really cartoony and it was super fun to do. But after that, we pretty much realized, okay, it's time to bring in people that do that professionally. My time and my brain power is all now on game design, which means I'm getting rusty in the other areas. So let's move on and get professionals involved. And it's, you know, honestly never look back. It's, uh, it's, it's been great. We got people who can do better than I ever could. And I at least can speak their language. That's the nice thing. You know, being an artist, I know how to talk to artists. I've been told I'm a very good art director. I can, you know, send sketches back and things really quick. So it's been a nice to have that sort of jack of all trades feel going on, but it's also nice to move on to let the pros handle it. <laughs> yeah. That's a great skill set to have. And so speaking of kind of moving on, uh, you've got castle panic, but you also have dead panic, munchkin panic and star Trek panic, uh, could you share with us a little bit about how you're able to bring those sorts of skins to life? Yeah. So at the heart of it, the panic engine, as I like to call it, is really robust. Um, the one thing that it does, though, is it really only works best if you have kind of a siege mentality. You know, if it's things are coming towards you, you are trying to defend the thing in the middle. Um, that thing can change and be a different thing. Um, but as long as you still have that central sort of, you know, last stand, uh, Alamo kind of thing, uh, it works pretty well for a bunch of stuff. And so, yeah, one of the things that we had early on, because again, you got to remember, we, we published in 2009, I think Walking Dead came out 2011, I forget. People were, were screaming for a zombie version. Like, where's zombie panic? Where's zombie panic? We want that. And I was like, I don't know. It's not, I can't just make zombies kind of thing. Oh, let me think about it. And so made a couple of other games. We came out with some expansions and then I, I started digging my teeth into it. And we're like, yeah, I think I can make a good zombie version. So um, the biggest trick with that was um, 
we had to change things to make that work mechanically because zombies aren't monsters. They don't work the same way and it's not the same scary because one of the problems is, well, in Castle Panic, you lose when all six towers get destroyed, but you're not in any risk. It's not like you're going to die or anything. Mm -hmm. And that does not work for a zombie game. You've got to have risk. You've got to have threat. So we changed a bunch. We made, instead of towers, there are characters now. And the whole point is not to outlast the zombies because they're never ending. Now the trick is to escape. So you had to get out there. And that was a whole different way of playing the game. Because one of the first things that happens is now you can move around that board. Your character actually goes outside the cabin and comes back in. And so there's a whole movement mechanic that had to be worked out. And then the other problem was, if you even with that mechanic, if you just slap zombie art and call it done on the monsters, they're the dumbest, most uninteresting things you've ever fought. They're not scary in any way, shape, or form. So we needed to make them just smart enough to be scary, which meant they needed to be able to like change arcs and move and there's a very simple algorithm in the game where essentially if a zombie can see you, which means if you're in its arc or yeah, if it's arc or the arc to the left or the right of the zombie, it will move towards you. Mm-hmm. And that changes the whole game because now as soon as you step outside, the zombies will swarm you just like in the movies. You'll have 20 of them all over you. And uh, it's terrifying. Works great. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was the next one we did there. Uh, Got uh, some great art for that and, you know, tested it out, tested really well, launched that one. It was a big success when it first came out. But then um, after doing that, uh, I kind of joked with my friend uh, uh, Phil Reed over at Steve Jackson Games. For years, we've been joking about doing Munchkin Panic. And I was always like, no, that doesn't make any sense. We won't do that. And we joked about it. We joked about it. And then we were at, uh, I think it was a Gamma one year having dinner. And we started talking about what it would actually be. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. That actually sounds really, really fun. It's like, imagine Castle Panic, but you can actually backstab instead of cooperating because you can still win the game. Oh, that sounds kind of fun. So we worked out a contract with those guys and we licensed the Munchkin brand from them, used all the artwork from the original game. And we made a version of Castle Panic where you can still win cooperatively, but as long as you have more dead bodies under in your trophy case than anyone else when the game ends, you can win even if everybody else, even if all the, the towers go down. So it brings up the whole backstabbing element. There are cards that actually like make monsters stronger and stuff. So it's it's a very fun, quirky twist on, uh, you know, sort of taking that munchkin where it's all for me and the castle panic where it's all for one and hybriding them up pretty well. And that was one actually that Emery, my wife, did the development on. She also designed Bears, our dice game, and Village Crown, yeah. a bunch of games. But yeah, she did uh, the development on Munchkin Panic, which was really fun. We worked with all the guys over there on that, and that was a, that was a hoot. Um, so then the last part of that story really is the Star Trek Panic story. So because we'd done Munchkin Panic, um, the guys over at USAopoly, uh, which is the OP now, um, uh, they had been working with Steve Jackson Games to do, I think it was Adventure Time Munchkin, and we got to talking about, hey, would you, as in Fireside, be willing to do some kind of a you know a themed game with us? We're like, yeah, sure, let's talk. You know, not not opposed to it. Kind of this vaporous what if sort of question, and sure. we we ended up getting a call from them. I forget exactly when now. I think it had something to do with Toy Fair where they were saying, hey, would you guys be interested in doing a game? We've got a really neat IP, but the trick is it can't use illustrations. It's going to have to be photographs. I'm like, uh, okay, that, that seems a, not a problem in any way, shape, or form, but sure, we'll do it. And then they come back, okay, well, we think we've got something, let's talk. We, we set up a meeting with them, and that's why I said, what do you think about Star Trek Panic? And my first thought was, it, this was when the J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboots were really big. And I was like, oh, I'm an old school Trekkie fan. Like, I don't really like the new one, but it could be really cool. And then they said, okay, so here's the deal. It's the 50th anniversary of the original series. And I was like, yes, yes, I'm in. Let's do this. <laughs> so, so we cute. went 
It was so fun. We went back and forth with them. Uh, we flew out to California to work on some design stuff with them. And it was really, really fun. Um, I spent a couple of weeks developing the game as it's going to be. So if, if you can imagine Castle Panic with its rings and arcs, it's the same kind of thing. But now you've got an Enterprise model, which is really cool, in the middle of the board with the little shields. And it's all on this base because it rotates. And the idea now is part of your turn is to rotate the ship because your phasers shoot in certain directions. Your photon torpedoes can only shoot forward. And you need to turn to face Klingons and Romulans that are coming at you and blow them up. But there's also these missions that we wanted to do. That's the whole point of Star Trek is the five-year mission kind of thing. And yeah. You have to complete five missions in the game, and the missions have all sorts of crazy things about blow up this one ship or maneuver the Enterprise, because there's a way we sort of fake moving forward where we pull tokens towards you. Uh, you have to maneuver to certain positions, or you have to rescue ships and things like that. And it's all taken very literally from the episodes. One of my fun parts of research for that game was uh, I got to watch the entire uh, original series as research and make notes. <laughs> it was super fun. So, oh yeah, God. Kirk and Spock off doing all their stuff. And um, that one's a little bit weird because I did like most of the design work. I basically handed over a very polished finished prototype for them to finish uh, development work on. They did all the artwork and everything because the USAopoly had the license from uh, CBS and uh, they licensed the Castle Panic name from us. So it was kind of like an Oreo. It's the best way I can describe it. Where USAopoly is the cream filling in the middle, uh, Star Trek's on one side and Castle Panic's on the other. So it's their game. They actually published it. And did all the development stuff, which was super awesome. The artwork is just amazing. The pieces are super cool. Uh, but it was really fun because I got to basically build the Star Trek game I wanted to, and then they made it. And it was a really interesting partnership. So it, to summarize my very long <laughs> diatribe here, we've done it a bunch of different ways. Dead Panic's completely ours. Munchkin Panic, we licensed Munchkin from Steve Jackson Games. And then Star Trek Panic, we sort of gave the game and the license to USAopoly because they had the IP we wanted to work with and went from there. So kind of seen the coin from a bunch of different sides there. That's so interesting. So when you were initially going into a meeting with the op, what were the different thoughts of what you might be working with? Like, did you think Star Trek would be one of them? Or did you have like a wish list in your head? Like if you were to make another Castle Panic skinned game, what would you want it to be? Oh my gosh. Um, Excuse me. So I think uh, to answer the first part of your question, our talks with USAopoly were really kind of short and sort of, hey, what if? By the time we really got digging our teeth in, we knew it was going to be Star Trek Panic. Uh, the 50th anniversary had like three or four games coming out. They did like a Trivial Pursuit or something else. Uh, oh, and that's the other thing that was fun. When we got to send it off to CBS for their approval, they told us it was the best Star Trek game they'd ever played and felt the most like Star Trek. So I was super excited about that. That's awesome. Um but yeah, so to answer your other question, um, right now we don't have any other variations in print, um, partly because licensing is tricky. Um, it's usually pretty expensive. And if you guess wrong, you can really come out bare bones on games because still to this day, a lot of games don't make huge amounts of profit. There's not a lot of margins in a lot of these games. Um and we also haven't found anything that just screams the perfect fit. You know, like I said earlier, it kind of needs to be that that siege, that last stand of the Alamo feel. Um, people are constantly coming up to me going, oh, you should do this, this panic and that panic. And sometimes they're neat ideas. Other times my brain freezes up and goes, there's no way that would work. That wouldn't be any fun at all. Have you played Castle Panic? Like, and and oh, there's... Yeah. We know that there's a certain rubber bandness. Like with, with Dead Panic, we pushed a lot there to make it different. But it also... The rubber band will snap if you go too far in a certain direction. So right now, I'm not sure I have a perfect one that if somebody came up to me, I might be like, oh, that's the one I want to do. But right now, off the top of my head, mm, 
the other hard part is the ones I can think of are incredibly expensive licenses to get that I don't think we want to actually go through. Something so, like Game of Thrones, I'm sure you've thought about. Yeah, I mean, like Game of Thrones, Star Trek, Star Wars. I mean, it's so ironic we did Star Trek, but we didn't make that negotiation. That's part of the deal. USAopoly did. Like, you know, uh, Star Wars is crazy hard to work with. So uh, as cool as that would be, no, that wouldn't work. So it would have to be something more unique than that, I think. And I'd kind of like to look for a weird IP, one that's maybe a little underserved, especially on the gaming side of things, and pull something neat out of there. But uh, yeah, like nobody's knocking on our door right now, and we're so buried in other things, it's not our biggest thing. But I would not be surprised. We've had a few conversations here and there that could lead to something that we'll probably do another neat one. But I do think if we do another variation, it's going to be tied to an IP. Um even though those licenses are expensive, it's just, it's such a better way to market a game right now to get people aware of what you're doing. Uh, you know, our own version of a game is always going to be a little bit harder to sell and especially harder to market. I'd love to see a Steven Universe Castle Panic with gems. There you go. That could kind of work, right? Like yeah. you're defending the the house from all yeah. of the bad gems, right? Right. I could see something like that working. Yeah. And, and that's you probably. Save the gems instead of, you save the gems instead of like destroy them. There we go. Solid. We'll make that next week. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. It's probably an interesting license because uh, I can't think of too many games in the Steven Universe thing that have come out. So, yeah, that would be. That could yeah, be I know Cryptozoic right? just popped out one not too long ago. They just fulfilled a Kickstarter. Mm hmm. But, yeah. yeah. And then, um, no, that actually, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of a different one. Yeah, no, that, I know that. I think there's a, isn't, isn't there another card game? Anyway, yeah, there, yeah it's, not, let's put, it's not oversaturated, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Plenty of plenty there to work with still. Nice. Very good. <laughs> and so when did you decide to create my first castle panic? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so for years we had been hearing, you know, so many people like, Oh, I love castle panic. It's great. Uh, oh, it's my first introduction to gaming. And we have some people who are like, my kids can play it. Why, why is it 10 and up? You know, my seven year old can play it. And then I've played with 12 year olds who, don't get it and really need to be handheld. And it's just, everybody's different. So one of the things we did here on the other side of that was people are like, oh man, my kids are so obsessed with the idea of Castle Panic, but they are too young. They cannot handle it. They can barely sit still long enough. So we're talking really little kids now, like three, four, five kind of thing. Um, sure. And yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect them to play a strategy game, even a gateway one. That's just too much. Plus there's all this reading and really to understand the strategy. That's just, that's not in their, 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 wheelhouse right now. So we had talked about, well, what can we do, you know, with that? And we had this idea for, well, we could make a kid's version of Castle Panic. That could be kind of fun. And I started tinkering with it and came up with this idea of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We streamline, we, we take it down to just one path instead of six. There's just one castle. Uh, and we make it like a, like a matching game because looking at the kind of skill sets that you're looking for in that preschool, that's what they're doing. You know, they're matching things. They're, they're learning to name things. There's a lot of repetition they need. And, uh, it was just super fun to think of like, okay, well, we can, we know we got colors. Let's play with shapes. Let's make the path have shapes on it and all that. And um, it kind of just went from there with like, boy, we really think this is going to work. We think there's enough demand. We'd also seen, I should, I should back up and say, we had seen on shelves more and more kids games coming out that were, you know, no longer just, you know, cooties and pickup sticks and those kind of things. Like they're actually kids games with some actual gameplay to them. And that gets right back to the heart of what I want to do. I'm, I'm so enthusiastic to expose people to gaming that I was like, yeah, let's do this. Let's give the a game for kids that uses actual game mechanics with some real tension and lots of replay value. Let's do it. So, um, yeah, it was very fun to test. <laughs> and, uh, 
um, once we had it fairly well polished, we sent it out for uh, some rough playtesting to some people. And that was when we knew we had something magical on our hands because immediately we were getting emails back going. So I printed it out and we played and I don't have a dining room table anymore because my daughter won't let me put the game away. (laughs) So it was, uh, it was again, another one of those moments like, okay, we think we did this right. And then we went out and we got um, Cam Kendall to do the art. Fantastic artist, uh, pretty much the perfect guy for that game. And uh, the rest is history. That one launched huge. Uh, that has been a nonstop uh, rocket ship ever since it came out. And uh, I get so many interesting comments on that one. But yeah, it basically came out of that idea of we saw that there was a market for kids games, especially preschoolers, and wanted to bring genuine gameplay to it, not just roll the dice and move kind of stuff. Uh, and I think we did a pretty good job, if I do say so. <laughs> I can attest. I believe you did a great job as well. It's a gift I like to give to families with young kids as a gateway game uh, to nice. kind of step up from the roll and move. Roll and, move. Uh, and it's so fun. And I think there is something too to being a collaborative game that really helps with the different ages when you yes. have, you know, a, a four-year-old and a six-year-old where they really just want <laughs> that, that competition can come in if it's too hardcore. Uh, you know, you start fights, start breaking out at the table and pieces oh, start yeah. flying because that's not <laughs> fair. And I want my turn. But when you're, we have a collaborative game like this, it really lends itself to those different ages coming together and helping each other because that's part of the game and you all win as a result. So I, I've really enjoyed, uh, the, the, my first castle panic. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. That was another big thing is we wanted to make a co-op. There are, there are a few, there's a couple of companies doing it, but it's kind of rare still. Most kids games are still games with winners and losers. And I have godchildren. I know how much they don't like to lose. So yeah, the co-op was a huge part of that. And uh, that's awesome. I'm glad it, it works for you and your family and your friends. It's, it's so cool to see that happen. And, you know, I get letters from people saying, like, my kids would never sit down together and play a game, but they will play this. And the other thing we did is we really wanted to make the game so, uh, I'll say simple in a good way, that um, kids could teach their friends. Because that was a big part of it is I want a preschooler to be able to play this once, mom and dad teach them, then they turn around and teach their friends how to play. So mom and dad can get a break if they want. And it teaches the kids all the socialization of gaming from teaching someone to, you know, enforcing, so to speak the rules, make sure people play fair. And it's worked. I see little kids grabbing their buddies and playing this and mom and dad just kind of sit back and watch. So it works. Yay. (laughs) So cute. I love that so much. (laughs) (laughs) And so for the initial Castle Panic, you do have a few expansions for it. Do you want to talk about what each of those expansions add to the initial game and what made you decide to add on the expansions? Yeah. So, um, uh, I'll start with the first one because that's probably the most interesting story. Uh, the Wizard's Tower. Uh, first one that came out, I think it was 2011 it came out, so two years after Castle Panic. That one is interesting because it is honestly, uh, I'd say a good 20, 30% of that game is what I took out of Castle Panic because we were getting too complicated. Uh, there was a point in playtesting the original game when we saw 
especially with the whole gateway game idea, people kind of scratching their heads and getting a little bit of analysis paralysis and, and not sure what to do. And when we trimmed out a few elements uh, stuff, and we also took out some of the more magical bits, we, we realized we had this really weird thing of it was almost all very grounded in reality with one or two glaringly magical elements that didn't really fit. When we took some of those things out, we got this really streamlined gameplay. And that's when we knew, okay, this is what we want. This is what people are like, literally they're finishing a game and setting it up to play again. We got it. This is working. So I pulled a few elements back and immediately was like, well, but I want to put this in and I want to do this. I want to do that. I knew I wanted to have more magic in the game and I had these ideas for bigger, meaner monsters. So um, it all just got like shelved because we, we, we had what we had. We locked it down. Castle Panic was great. And then that was the next thing is let's move on to other ideas. And one of the cool things too was within like uh, – a month, maybe two of the game being out, I started getting emails from people going, oh, I love Castle Panic. You should put it in a monster that does this. And oh man, Castle Panic is great. You need to make a thing that, that does this. And I want to be able to do this in the game. And so we took some of those ideas and I, some of them were like, okay, I think I see what you are trying to go for. Let me make that work in the game. And there were a few that were like, wow, that's a great idea for a monster. Let's test it, you know? Um, and we put credits in the, in the credits. We named people if they gave us inspiration for it if like some sometimes they were they were you know pretty influential in terms of directing us down a road but a whole bunch of those were things that i had kind of on the shelf uh things i wanted to pull out like for example the wizard's tower adds the biggest thing is a wizard's tower which gives you um a whole deck of magic cards that you can now use that cast these really powerful spells uh they're only as good though as long as the magic tower stands if the monsters take that out you can't draw any more magic cards um there's a few other castle cards that we put in. Those are some of the things that we took out for complexity's sake that are now in there. Things like let you change the range of a card or change the color of a card so you can plan your hits a little more. A few things like that. Um, then uh, also is the thing with the monsters. It has a ton more monsters and they do all sorts of special stuff. Because in the original game, most of the monsters are pretty brainless and dumb. There's four special guys that come out. We call them boss monsters. They have a special power. And so for the Wizard's Tower, we've got mega boss monsters. They're bigger and meaner. They have four and five points. And then they uh, they have a power usually that lasts as long as they're alive. The other guys in the base game, they just do it once and then they're regular monsters. So this lasting power can really be tough to overcome. We have flying monsters that can only be hit with archers. Uh, there's monsters that move different speeds. There's special damage ranges and stuff like that. And then we also wanted to have fire. I'd been playing with it in Castle Panic, but it was really complicated to explain. So in Wizard's Tower, we had fire, and now both the castle and the monsters can be lit on fire and take damage uh, and when they move and stuff like that. So it really flushes out the world uh, a lot more. It takes it to the next level. And we get told a lot that for most people, it's kind of a must-have. And I know for gamers, that's totally true. But I still, if I'm teaching someone who's new to gaming, I teach just the basic game. And then they want to know what else is out there. And I show them the other expansions. So, um, so yeah, that's Wizard's Tower. The next one after that was called The Dark Titan. Because I wanted to play with a really big main bad guy. You know, like a central villain. Like a, like a video game villain you have to take on at the end. And uh, that we did in that one. We called him Agronok. He's a big spiky demon lord monster guy. And uh, we did a really fun thing there where there are herald tokens mixed in the game that are just regular little two-point monsters, but they're kind of special. When you get a herald, you instead of putting it on the board, you put it on this card. There's little spaces on the card, um, three spaces, where you put these heralds. They all have an effect each time they come out. And when you fill the, all three spaces on the card with heralds, that's when Agronok appears. So you know he's getting closer as you put these heralds out, and it gets scarier and scarier. And then you flip over that card because there's five different versions of Agronok. Some are easier, some are terrifying. And then you flip it over, see which one you get. And then Agronok enters the game and you fight him. 
Uh, we also introduced for the first time in that one some friendly tokens. We call them support tokens. They look like monster tokens on the back, but when they go on the board, they're actually humans, and you move them by paying cards out of your hand to get them to the castle. And when you do that, you'll get a reward or a bonus if they survive. The problem is if they run into monsters, they take damage and can die and stuff. So it's a kind of a balance of do you you know keep them safe and rush them into the castle for the bonus? Do you smack them into monsters or what? So that was a uh, an interesting thing. And then um, the last, I'd say most recent, but it's pretty old now, um, Engines of War is the last expansion we made. It, is, it gets back to the idea of I wanted to tweak an economic engine that I've been playing with. It's incredibly simple. But what we do is in the base game, you have brick and mortar cards that let you build walls. Well, we take those out in the expansion Engines of War, and we give you instead a whole new deck that has brick and mortar, but also has rope and wood. And then we give you a little engineer tile where you can build different things. You can assign different tasks, and they take different amounts of those cards. The cool thing is on your turn when you're drawing up, you can draw um, these cards, these resource cards, you can do as many as you want. You want to fill your hand, you knock yourself out. And then you pay for the things that get built cooperatively. So like I can put down brick, somebody else can put down mortar and someone else can put down wood and we've built this thing together. And there's all these things you build, like little pits and traps that you throw out on the board. You can build a catapult that does massive damage to monsters. Uh, but it's very, very simple. It's just those four resources in different combinations, again, all paid cooperatively. Meanwhile, monsters are still coming at you. We introduced new monsters and we also introduced um, siege engines. So now what happens is you put two troll tokens under this other token, like say it's the either the siege tower or the war wagon, and they're basically hiding inside this little vehicle that moves around the board crazy. You have to kill the vehicle, which exposes the two trolls underneath, or orcs rather, orcs not trolls. Uh, you get yeah. the two orcs out and you hit them. So there's, uh, there's a lot going on there. And, and, and the cool thing is, at this point, the game is kind of like a Lego set. You can mix and match anything you want. All the expansions are interchangeable. Uh, you can just put one or two of them in. You can just do one. Uh, and and you can put some monsters from one, some monsters from another. It's totally kind of up to the players now. We provide a recipe that we've tested and it works, but it's really pretty flexible. And it's neat. I've heard people do all sorts of different mix matches of things, and it's, it's pretty cool. There's a lot you can do with it. And uh, the biggest reason for all of that is essentially just because there was demand. People were begging for more monsters, more things to do, more, more, more castle stuff. People want more castle panic. And I got a list the word files, like 20 pages long of ideas. So it's not like I don't have things I can give them. So it's a question of, you know, theming it right. And then testing, making sure everything tests right. Yeah. So my biggest question is, did you make a ramp for that damn boulder? Because I have never lost this game because of the like creepy creatures coming from the forest. It's always the boulder. I roll perfectly <laughs> where the boulder takes out everything I hold dear in my heart. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a special ink we printed. It's got uh, some goat blood in the rules so that it's magical. No, got it. <laughs> no, got some it. people just have have <laughs> trouble with the boulder. I'm not going to deny it. Now, here's the other thing, though. Have you ever played a game where you roll the boulder and it just right through your castle because everything that is in that arc is gone? It just rolls through an empty castle. No, literally oh, really? always takes out anything, any castle wall that hasn't been hit, and it never hits any of the bad guys. I'm oh, just man. like, are you kidding me? There's this army, and the one direction is the one that is not going to hit anything. Nice. <laughs> you need I to let someone else roll. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, that was, it's probably me. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like cursed, cursed dice, definitely. You need to let someone else roll. And uh, uh, yeah, when it's your turn, don't draw any boulders. That's the magic trick. <laughs> Yeah. No, I have seen boulders break games and make games so many times. Yeah. <laughs> so as you look back on the journey of the design and publication for Castle Panic, what was your 
most memorable favorite experience? And what was the most challenging lesson you learned? Hmm. Good question. Let's see. Um, probably the most memorable would have to be, uh, I think when we were, I want to say we were in a Barnes and Noble maybe, uh, and we saw it on the shelf. And it was the weirdest thing because it had been this thing that was in my house for years. And like, how did they get my game? My first thought literally was like, somebody robbed my house and left my game here. It was so <laughs> weird. It's just unreal to see. And then that kind of settled down. Okay, okay, no, it's all right. They have a right to have it here. It's good. So that was that was fun in a weird, very surreal kind of way. Seeing it out there in the wild was really, really neat. Um, Honestly, one of my favorite things, though, I'd have to say is some of the comments I get from people. I get messages all the time from people about how much they love the game. And some of them are, you know, like, this is the last game I played with my dad before he passed away. Uh, my kid who, you know, has autism and won't interact with anyone loves to teach his friends. He has friends now. He'll teach this game to them. We get stories like that a lot. And that's really powerful. You know, I, I, I wanted to expose gaming to the world. But I think there's some people that we've actually, you know, made their lives better. So it's kind of crazy. But it's really neat to hear. Uh, we do. We used to do tours back when you could go places um, where we would go to game stores and play the game. And it was really neat to meet our fans. Then We had all sorts of cool engagements. I remember when we were in California one time and this dad brought his three kids in and they were really shy. They wouldn't come up, but I could tell they were fans. So I went over and I talked to them and they, the dad was like, they want to give you something. And the kids handed me these like parchment scrolls. I don't know where they got this parchment, but they had each drawn their own parchment because they knew we were going to be at the game store and they wanted to come and meet us. And they'd drawn like pictures of the troll mage. One guy had written out a new monster he wanted me to make. And they were just like wrapped up in string. They'd even like burn the edges and everything. And just the look on their faces to see like, it was kind of neat that they were meeting me, but just to see how much they loved this game was, I don't know, it is kind of blew my mind because they were pretty little. I mean, they're probably only in their teens now. It's one of those things where I think about like, wow, there's like adults going to be coming. Kids are going to be turning into adults who have played this game growing up. You know, that's, that's just wild. So that kind of stuff all mushes together into one big, very happy aura for me <laughs> of what this has all been. Um, I think the challenging, the thing that's probably the most challenging has been some of the, the stuff that gets back to running Fireside. Um, Running a game company is, like I said, it's a real business. It's got all the ups and downs, you know. Uh, I never thought I would ever know as much about international shipping as I do now, or safety testing, or, uh, you know, I I would read the news with an eye towards, uh uh-oh, there's a port strike in some place, that's going to mess with my day. Uh, Things like that. Um, there's a lot of that that isn't fun. Uh, dealing with accountants, you know, copyright infringements, things like that. Those, those are not fun. They are not why I wanted to get into this. And that's been probably the biggest eye-opener, I'd say, is that, yeah, running a business that deals in international stuff and making things and all that is – it's a challenge, not all of which is a good time. So it's important to focus on the fun parts like designing and meeting fans and stuff. So that's that's how I think I'd wrap those two answers up. That's really great to hear. And – uh, it's so special how meaningful games can be for people and for families. I'm just mm-hmm. thinking about how at the beginning you shared Settlers was what got you back, got you into design and yep. just thinking about how there are now people who maybe played Castle Panic and are now, that was their first gateway game. Um, yeah. as did, and they may get into design sort of the next generation. So it's cool how it comes full circle. Yeah, it really is. It's wild to think that the game's been around that long, too. You know, it's like I remember when uh, Pokemon Go came out, people were excited because 
kids who grew up on Pokemon now had their own kids who can play with them. And I think we're not far from hearing stories like that about Castle Panic, which kind of makes me feel really old, but it also makes me feel really happy. That's great. Eternal youth. Uh, let's see here. Justin, <laughs> if if there's now that you've been, you know, kind of delving more into the game design and game development side of things, could you offer up one piece of advice to the listeners about uh, about design as a whole, like maybe a, a tip that you wish again? Yeah, you would have known uh, maybe five years ago that you do know now that something that you feel could steer you uh, in an even better direction as a better designer. Mm, okay, something really design oriented. I think I've said I think I've said this before, and I will definitely hammer on it again. Um, the single best thing you can do as a designer is to blind test your rules, uh, get your rules finished to a point where they are working good, and then you give them to a group of people who have no vested interest in your emotional well being, and you walk away. Uh, and then, really, what you should do is hide in the corner and make notes of what happens to them. But the idea is these people are playing the game as if they just brought it home. You don't help them. You don't give them any advice or feedback. You just make notes and they will tell you when things go wrong. If, if, if you've got the right group, if not, you need to make notes on when they're scratching their heads and pounding the table and things like that. But, um, doing that kind of testing where you're really simulating someone has brought your game home, torn off the shrink wrap and they're playing it. How, how are the rules working? Because, you know, and this is the problem is doesn't matter how shiny your bits are or how cool your card mechanic is. How did you explain it in your rules? You need to beat that until nothing comes out of it is kind of the way I feel. Um, when you can blind test and everyone plays the game correctly and is doing it right and having a good time, that's when you're about ready to be done. So I still am bumping into a lot of games that I can play them and within five minutes. I'm like, yep, this needs its rules tested or this needed to be edited a bit more or something. You can tell there's moments that aren't clear. So um that will pay off immensely because it is crucial to how people enjoy your game. So a great rule book only helps you and makes people more excited about your game. They will, people will go on BGG and talk about how great your rule book is, you know? So that's probably my biggest thing, I think. And it's specifically that blind testing. It's not just make a good rule book. It's test it, break it, rebuild it, test it some more. Uh, that makes, that makes a game better no matter what you're working on. Is it sad that that's the first time someone's brought that up on this podcast? Oh, really? Yay me! (laughs) No, I honestly, I love it because every single designer has a different thought as far as what is good advice. And I, it is great advice because I mean, yes, right now during COVID is, it's a lot harder to find playtesters in general, but blind playtesters for sure hard. (laughs) Yeah. The only good thing I would say about blind playtesting is if you can send someone a print and play, it's the truest blind play test you'll get. The hard part is they'll only give you their feedback versus when you are there watching and going, oh, they are all looking at the rule book, scratching their heads and looking at their phones. I'm losing them. You know, that's really important to be able to see. So, yeah. COVID. So I know it's the worst. <laughs> it is. So as far as Fireside Games goes, what's next for the company? Well, the biggest thing we're working on is getting ready for our big old Kickstarter. Uh, we, uh, we launched a Kickstarter last year for a deluxe version of Castle Panic, uh, basically taking Castle Panic, giving it all new art, all new fancy bits, wooden tokens and uh, plastic minis for the monsters and all that. Uh, we've been working on that for I don't even know how long now, a couple of years. And the Kickstarter went great. But the first piece of feedback we started getting was everyone was like, wait, it's just the base game. We want all the expansions deluxe, too. And our plan had been launch the deluxe base game 
see, see what the interest is there, then launch the expansions afterwards as their own Kickstarters. Kind of would let us gauge interest a little bit more and stuff like that. Also, a little easier to kind of make along the way. Uh, no, people wanted the whole thing. <laughs> so we killed the Kickstarter. We canceled it, shut it down. And essentially for the last year, I have been working on getting all the bits and pieces together to make uh, the Castle Panic Deluxe Collection, we're calling it now. And it is going to be Castle Panic, Dark Titan, Wizard's Tower, Engines of War, all deluxified. Every monster is now a sweet, amazing plastic mini. Um, we've got upgraded components for all the other bits. We're making fancier dice and stuff. So um, it is amazing. I've actually been uh, showing and teasing every day. I'm doing a, like a Facebook Live uh, thing, showing off a new bit or piece of art or a mini or something. And that's been really fun. But that is what we're working on now. Um, And yeah, depending on when this goes live, it's going to be coming soon. Uh, The plan is uh, March right now. And uh, yeah, we are all hands on deck making this happen. It is going to be amazing. Um, And it's also going to be a limited edition thing. This is not something that's going to go into retail. This is too crazy, uh, expensive and weird and funky to be something that we think we can keep in print uh, like that. So we're going to do this as kind of a... Uh, one big extravaganza deal and go on from there. And uh, then I'm going to work on other things. <laughs> That's been my big thing for like the last year. Seriously. I'm so excited to see what this looks like when it's completely done. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's so cool. And I think that's a wrap. Listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 11, Castle Panic. Justin, thank you again for joining us. For anyone looking to find you, where could you be reached? Uh, you can find us at firesidegames.com on our website where we have a blog and stuff. If you want to reach us uh, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, it's all Fireside Games. Uh, and we try to keep up with all that stuff. That's fantastic. I can't wait to cozy up next to the Fireside with a few uh, games from your collection in mind in the near future. This is your host, Ben. I can be found on Facebook as Ben Moy and uh, with my board game design page, your friend Ben Moy designs board games. And this is Danielle Reynolds, and you can find me on Facebook at DMR Creative Group, as well as Twitter at Creative DMR and Instagram as Token Gamer, and that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. This is Denise. You can find me on Twitter at Year23. Thank you again, listeners, and I hope you were inspired. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.